A crowd has gathered about the gallows built in the center of town. A year ago, this would have been more people than you'd ever seen at one time in this backwater frontier outpost. But now, this vision is becoming an unfortunately familiar occasion. A group of men, their faces hidden, push another man forward, slipping his head into an empty noose. While their identities are obscured, you know these men are members of the Vigilance Committee of Alder Gulch, and the one they are about to hang is a suspected outlaw. Those about you seem conflicted with the swiftness of execution and lack of a trial. Others, however, cheer them on. Without ceremony, a stool is kicked from beneath the man's trembling boots, his life ending abruptly at the end of a rope. Whether or not the hanging man actually committed the crimes for which he was accused will forever remain a mystery. American mythology is rife with whispers of secret societies, scheming and manipulating the populace from lofty corporate high-rises and from within the hallowed halls of political power. Influential figures, their identities often obscured, gather in secret amongst their brothers and sisters within sanctuaries far from the public eye. Common folk know these enigmatic organizations by ominous epithets, Skull and Bones, Rosicrucian, Freemason, Illuminati. It is these shadow-veiled cabals who weave a web of conspiracy across politics and business, both local and abroad. The work of such sinister leagues is often relegated to secure boardrooms and clandestine communique, but that has not always been the case. Throughout the 1860s, a pair of rival factions vied for supremacy over a burgeoning frontier, blazing a bloody trail across the vast territory that would become Montana and Idaho. With secret passwords, cryptic codes, and masked identities, the Innocents and the Vigilance Committee of Alder Gulch were at war. The question remains, however, with the dust settled and bodies long since buried, exactly who were the trespassers and who were their victims. In the summer of 1862, gold was discovered along a remote tributary of the Beaverhead River at a place called Grasshopper Creek. Less than a year later, another strike was made at Alder Gulch, approximately 70 miles from the boomtown of Bannock. Within the blink of an eye, Alder Gulch grew from an isolated mining claim to one of the largest gold fields in the western United States. Like Bannock before them, Virginia City and Nevada City sprung forth from the wilderness to support the influx of miners as well as the myriad aspects of commerce that nipped at their heels. A new gold rush was on, one that would culminate in one of the bloodiest outbreaks of vigilante justice in the American West. The remoteness of these locations alongside their sudden foundation meant these frontier towns lacked many of the amenities and systems enjoyed by more civilized locales. 
Most notably, there was little organized government and the justice system was nearly non-existent. As a side effect of gold mining being the primary economic force, the populace almost exclusively used the mineral as currency, whether in the form of nuggets, flakes, or powder. These circumstances gave rise to the first of our covert brotherhoods, an organized crime syndicate known as the Innocents. This seemingly antithetical name rose from the supposed secret password used by the members to identify one another. I am innocent. The group was theorized to number over 100 outlaws and is often blamed for committing a similar number of crimes across the territory. The secure transportation of valuable cargo simply did not exist at the time, making the numerous stagecoaches and freight wagons easy targets for industrious outlaws and entrepreneurial road agents. The crimes attributed to the innocents are legion, ranging from simple holdups to stage robberies, extortion, political corruption, and outright murder. The individual crimes are simply too numerous to elaborate fully, though many of the professed victims named prominent or up-and-coming members of society amid their ranks. In December of 1863, John Bozeman, the frontiersman for which the Bozeman Trail is named, fell victim to road agents Dutch John Wagner and Steve Marshland in an attempted robbery of a wagon train carrying $80,000 in gold dust. In the same month, Alec Carter and George Ives attempted to rob the future executive of the Montana Power Company, Anton Holter. The employees of powerful lawyer and soon-to-be Senator Wilbur Fisk Sanders and his partner Sidney Edgerton, a judge and politician, came under attack only the month before. But it would be the actions of the aforementioned criminal George Ives that would act as the catalyst for the creation of the innocent's downfall. No formal court system was available to the residents of Alder Gulch and Grasshopper Creek until the formation of the Montana Territory on May 26, 1864. As a substitute, criminal guilt was determined in so-called minors' courts. These occasions were notorious for their informality and transient existence. While few descriptions of the full process exist, it is well known that the populace held them in quite low regard. It seems that the ultimate conviction of an accused criminal was basically up to popular vote, something that could easily be swayed or rigged by seeding the gathered crowd with sympathetic individuals. George Ives, a well-documented participant in a number of criminal activities, was put on public trial on December 19, 1863, for the slaying of a Dutch immigrant named Nicholas Tebolt. The prosecutor in this miners' court was none other than Wilbur Fisk Sanders, who was mentioned earlier among the many victims of predation. Sanders, in part due to his participation in the bloody events that followed, would become the first senator of Montana when the territory became a state in 1889. After an arduous three-day trial, George Ives was found guilty and sentenced to hang. Despite the guilty verdict and satisfactory execution, the citizens were fed up with the protracted and easily manipulated proceedings offered by the miners' courts. They were simply not efficient or effective enough to meet the judicial demands laid at the feet of Bannock and Virginia City. A mere two days after the hanging of George Ives, 
five prominent Virginia City citizens, led by Sanders himself, gathered in relative secrecy to organize the so-called Vigilance Committee of Alder Gulch. The founding members used a similar consortium, the San Francisco Committee of Vigilance, as a model and template for their own. A man named Paris Fouts was elected as the formal president of the committee, and together, the five men set about naming a number of other officers and establishing a set of bylaws that dictated the committee's chain of command. Members of the Alder Gulch Vigilance Committee were to attach themselves to a company of men, each company having a captain and a lieutenant. Upon hearing of or witnessing a crime, a member was bound by oath to inform their company's leader, who would then take charge in the investigation of said crime, as well as the charging and arrest. Once the suspect was apprehended, the captain would present their evidence to a chief officer and convene the executive committee for the final sentencing. Once the final verdict was reached, there was no room for further discussion. Another aspect of the oath taken upon induction into the Vigilance Committee was one of secrecy. Official members were under no circumstances to communicate the identities or inner workings of the organization, ostensibly to keep the criminal element from uncovering their activities. Due to the nature of such a secret society, the vast majority of those that held membership continued to elude documentation. However, history has revealed that several within the Vigilance Committee's ranks rose to positions of power and wealth within the fledgling territory of Montana. As already stated, Sanders went on to become Montana's first senator, while Sidney Edgerton became the first governor. The lead editor of the Montana Post, Thomas Dimsdale, was also a so-called vigilante, as well as Nathaniel P. Langford, the first superintendent of Yellowstone National Park. Various other members included notable merchants, business owners, and founding community members. Over the next two years, the Vigilance Committee carried out dozens of covert trials and clandestine executions. As a byproduct of the organization's tight-lipped policies differentiating between the actions of official vigilance and those of galvanized citizens is nearly impossible. Regardless, the number of suspected outlaws and road agents killed by the committee range from 15 to potentially 35. The most storied of these executions was that of the ringleader of the Innocents, a man suspected of wielding his position of power within the community as a corrupting force. This was, of course, Henry Plummer, none other than the Sheriff of Bannock. Born in Addison, Maine in the year 1832, Henry Plummer led a tumultuous life that often skirted the lines of law and order. At the youthful age of 19, Plummer left the East and headed to the gold fields of California in 1852 at the height of the famous gold rush. While many were not successful in their search for gold, Plummer had been. Soon enough, he was the owner of not only a mine, but also a bakery and a ranch in Nevada City. In 1856, he was elected sheriff there as well as city manager. His supporters encouraged him to run for state representative as a Democrat, but a split party sealed his fate and Plummer lost the election. Perhaps this was an omen foretelling his turn in fortunes, for the very next year, on September 25, 1857, his reputation would take a turn for the worse. As city marshal, Plummer had been contracted to provide armed protection to a woman named Lucy Vetter, who
who sought to escape from her abusive husband, John Vetter. Plummer shot and killed John, an act he claimed was in self-defense. Unfortunately, a jury of his peers did not see it that way. Plummer was convicted of second-degree murder, a charge he quickly appealed. A retrial was, in fact, granted, but he was subsequently convicted a second time and sentenced to 10 years in San Quentin State Prison. Not all was lost, however, as his supporters wrote the governor in 1859 asking that he pardon the imprisoned plumber on the basis of his good character and civil service. The pardon was granted, but not due to any moral or social standing plumber yet maintained. He had unfortunately been diagnosed with tuberculosis, a true death sentence for the time. Having not forsaken his duty to the law, Plummer attempted a citizen's arrest in 1861 that left William Riley, an escaped convict from San Quentin, dead. This time, however, the slaying was deemed justified by local authorities. Regardless, Plummer left the state fearing that his own prison record would come back to haunt him. Violence would follow Plummer for years, a plague not unlike that festering within his lungs. In Washington, he was the winning participant in a gunfight which caused him to flee back to his birthplace. While traveling east, he was recruited to once again provide protection, this time to an upstart mission fearing attacks by the local Native American tribes. While at the mission, located in Sun River, Montana, Plummer fell in love with Electa Bryan, the sister-in-law of James Vale, the mission's founder. Plummer asked for Electa's hand in marriage, which she readily accepted. At the same time, gold had been recently discovered in Bannock. Having had success with prospecting in the past, Plummer decided he would try his hand again, if only to support the life he'd planned with the new bride. However, Plummer had not been the only man to fall for Electa. Jack Cleveland, a horse trader, had also taken a fancy to the woman and harbored enough jealousy to inspire him to follow Plummer back to Bannock. In January of 1862, Cleveland instigated a fight with Plummer in the midst of a crowded saloon. Plummer killed the man in self-defense with dozens of witnesses. Shortly after, his reputation led him to being elected town sheriff. In 1863, the very next year, the number of crimes in and around the area of Alder Gulch skyrocketed. Many began to suspect that the new sheriff was somehow involved in the rash of robberies and murders. In the wake of George Ives' execution, the vigilantes arrested and executed at least 20 alleged members of the innocents, while an untold number were warned away with a cryptic code, 3777, which spurred their immediate departure. On one such raid, a posse of vigilantes led by Captain James Williams would unravel the entire conspiracy. Near the Rattlesnake Ranch on the banks of Ruby River, the posse ran down a pair of suspected outlaws, George Brown and Erastus Red Yeager. While being transported back to Virginia City, Yeager confessed to his crimes as well as naming every member of the outlaw gang. His willingness to cooperate did little to save him, however. Both he and Brown were hanged from a tree before ever reaching their destination. With this new information, the vigilantes were more motivated than ever. 
On the morning of January 10, 1864, a party of vigilantes arrested Sheriff Plummer and his two deputies, Buck Stinson and Ned Ray. Their only evidence, the word of a criminal already dead. The trial of George Ives is a linchpin that, once pulled, created a deadly domino effect that would leave only corpses in its wake. One such victim was that of George Clubfoot Lane. Born with a congenital birth defect in his foot, Lane was readily recognizable by the deformity, something that ultimately branded him with the less-than-desirable moniker of Clubfoot. Hailing from Massachusetts, Lane, too, followed the gold rush west. Like Plummer, Lane had run-ins with the law in at least two places before eventually making his way to Virginia City. Unlike Plummer, there is no record of Lane having killed any man, though two counts of horse thievery were undoubtedly serious crimes in those days. While in Montana, Lane worked as a bootmaker in the employee of the Dance and Stewart General Store, where he received praise for his admirable work ethic. Disturbed by the growing talk of vigilantism in Virginia City, Lane rode to Bannock where he sought to inform Sheriff Plummer of the turbulent proceedings and ask for a civilian trial. Plummer was not present when Lane arrived, but he reported his concerns to the deputies there. Lane's mission attracted the attention of the newly formed vigilante committee, who quickly moved to name him a spy for the innocents. On January 14, 1864, only four days after the hanging of Plummer, Lane and four others were arrested by agents of the Vigilance Committee and sentenced to hang that very afternoon. Lane is noted as having warned his captors that they were about to hang an innocent man, but his words held little sway. Despite a number of citizens believing Lane was innocent of any wrongdoing, the vigilantes proceeded with their execution. When pushed to stand on a box atop the gallows, neck in a noose, Lane reportedly saw a friend in the crowd to which he called, Goodbye, old fellow. I am gone. From there, George Lane jumped from his perch, unprovoked, ending his life and robbing the vigilance of their satisfaction. That Lane was connected in any way to the outlaw activities that plagued the goldfields of Idaho and Montana Territory, there is little evidence. It is worth noting, however, that he clearly had a connection to Plummer, and if, in fact, Plummer was the chieftain of the innocents, it is easy to see the bootmaker's actions as suspicious. While the vigilantes were seemingly able to draw a tenuous line between George Lane, Henry Plummer, and the so-called Gang of Innocents, there are other examples for which no connection exists at all. Take, for example, Joseph Alfred Slade, who was evidently too much of a nuisance to let live any longer. This man, also known as Jack Slade, is not necessarily well known within the popular canon of Wild West figures, often overshadowed by the likes of Wild Bill Hickok, Bass Reeves, or the Earps. However, there is no denying the impact this particular man had on the popular vision of the American gunfighter. Born in Carlisle, Illinois on January 22, 1831, Slade would begin his storied career as a soldier stationed in Santa Fe during the Mexican-American War. Afterward, he would sign on to be a teamster and wagon master for the freight coaches that traveled the Overland Trail. 
In May of 1859, one of Slade's subordinates, a man named Andrew Farron, was holding up the progress of a particular freight train. To resolve the matter, Slade simply shot and killed the man. It was here that his reputation, whether true or fabricated, began to grow. Eastern journalists and authors, including the likes of Mark Twain in his classic work Roughing It, wove yarns of Slade's gunfighting skills and numerous standoffs with outlaws and robbers. Despite nearly all of these stories being the product of fruitful imaginations, readers in the eastern markets devoured tales of Slade and his ilk. The spread of these sordid stories helped to coalesce the image of the gunfighter within the consciousness of popular culture. After plying his trade at a series of stagecoach lines throughout the West, Slade went on to participate in the founding and operation of another Wild West icon, the Pony Express. With the rising prominence of California on the stage of American politics, especially in the wake of the gold rush, there was an ever-increasing demand for reliable communication between Washington, D.C. and the West Coast. This need was only exacerbated by the onset of the American Civil War. As superintendent of the organization, it was Slade's responsibility that the line of communication remained orderly and intact. In March of 1860, Slade was ambushed by Jules Binney, a corrupt station manager who had been leading a gang in the organized robbery of passing coaches. In the ensuing gun battle, Slade was grievously injured by a shotgun blast and left for dead. Binney was eventually arrested while Slade was recovering from his wounds, but was released after taking an oath to leave town and never come back. In a decision that would lead to his death, Binney returned to the area where he was jumped by Slade's men and disarmed. In an act of brutal revenge, Slade tied Binney to a fence post, shot him multiple times, and separated both ears from the man's head. Slade kept one of the ears as a souvenir, while the other was sold for drinking money. It was Slade's reputation as a hard man, alongside his penchant for drink, that would put him in the sights of the Vigilance Committee of Alder Gulch. After being discharged from his duties at Fort Halleck due to drunkenness, Slade drifted from town to town, indulging himself whenever able. It was during this time that his already brutalist attitude began to further sour. By the time he settled with his wife on a ranch near Virginia City, his reputation had transformed from that of a hard-line peacekeeper to that of a menace. While under the influence, Slade had taken to terrorizing and bullying the locals with inebriated rants and brash outbursts. In the end, the Vigilance Committee decided Slade was simply too much of a liability to keep around any longer. On March 10, 1864, a mob of vigilantes accused Slade of disturbing the peace while he had been on a bender in the streets of Virginia City. It is said that Slade begged for his life, that he pleaded for mercy, crying for his wife. The vigilantes, however, were unswayed, holding fast to their tenants and oaths. Jack Slade was lynched that very day. The question remains, was the Vigilance Committee a force for good, or were they an overzealous band of killers? Take the execution of Henry Plummer, for example. Was he truly hanged on the word of an outlaw, or was there more evidence that led his executioners to this conclusion? In truth, 
there is little evidence pointing to Plummer's criminality. That which does seems circumstantial at best. As the story goes, a pair of young innocents were spared due to their age and were told by the vigilantes to go and warn the other gang members that they would be hanged if they didn't prioritize imminent evacuation. One of these unnamed youths was sent to Bannock and the other to Lewiston, where gang members were said to have gathered along the river and steamboat docks. At the time, Plummer was known to have traveled to Lewiston while sheriff, a claim bolstered by hotel registries bearing his name. This anecdote, however, does not prove that Plummer had committed any crimes. It is worth noting that reports of robbery and stage holdups greatly diminished after Plummer's execution. However, whether or not his death was the catalyst is hard to determine. The numerous lynchings by the vigilantes seem a more reasonable explanation for the sudden drop in outlaw activity. As a capstone to Plummer's saga, in 1993, a mock trial was held at the Madison County Courthouse, organized and operated by Twin Bridges Public Schools. Both adults and students played various roles in the trial, recounting the events as told in documentation by first-hand witnesses. After a six-hour trial, the jury was deadlocked at 6-6. Six, six. A mistrial was announced and the student playing Plummer was set free. Spurred by the media attention, historians sympathetic to Plummer's plight petitioned the state of Montana to posthumously pardon the man. The Montana Board of Pardons and Parole denied the request, not on the grounds of guilt, but because Plummer had never been charged with a crime. With Plummer's guilt now in doubt, what of the innocence, the outlaw gang he supposedly led, Historians have found little evidence or documentation noting the existence of such an organization. The earliest accounts of the supposed syndicate are unreliable, leaning on vagaries and estimates to paint a picture more rooted in mythology than reality. Little details like code words and tying ties and secret knots to identify affiliation stand further within the realm of fantasy than they do in history. If the innocents did exist, they would have operated not unlike mafia crime families or drug cartels, infiltrating all manner of businesses including banks, general stores, and stage stops. However, historians now believe that it is more likely the robberies were simply the result of small, independent criminal groups who were drawn to the goldfields of a lawless frontier like vultures to a corpse. If the innocence did not truly exist, at least in the form touted in legend and story, what of the more outlandish descriptions of the Vigilance Committee? It is true that they were founded as a sort of secret society, and many of their lower-ranking members continue to elude definition. One aspect that stands above the rest, however, is the cryptic code 3777, said to be a warning for all wrongdoers. Its origin seems to be a mystery, with numerous explanations seeking to elucidate the meaning. Some say that this is a representation of the dimensions of a grave, 3 feet by 7 feet by 77 inches. Others claim it to be the time allotted to the accused for them to disappear, 
and even the price of a $3 stage ticket for a 7 a.m. ride on a 77-mile trip from Helena to Butte. One account ties directly to the Montana Vigilantes, citing the date the members signed their oath, March 7, 1877. While the dates don't line up with the actual outbreak of vigilante justice in Alder Gulch, the claim is strangely linked to the same date emblazoned on the Masonic Lodge in Bannock. It is here where history becomes easily spun into conspiracy, linking the vigilance to the Freemasons. However, this attribution is likely false, as the first recorded use of 3777 was actually in Helena, Montana, in 1879. It seems this detail was a late addition to the growing notoriety of vigilante justice in the territory. It is worth note, however, that Wilbur Fisk Sanders, the founder of the vigilantes, was in fact associated with Freemasonry at the time. It was due to this connection, as well as his Protestant beliefs, that ruffled the feathers of political rival Thomas Francis Meager, who was a vocal critic of vigilantism. Meager died under mysterious circumstances when he fell overboard while on a steamboat trip near Fort Bitten, Montana. In a strange stroke of coincidence, or ghastly premeditation, Sanders was also present in Fort Bitten on that very same day. Lastly, we return to George Clubfoot Lane, whose story does not end with his self-induced execution. After his death, Lane was buried in Boot Hill Cemetery alongside another executed man in an unmarked grave. In 1907, citizens of Virginia City began to question who exactly was buried within these plots. Aided by a former vigilante, the body was exhumed in order to verify the identity of the interred. Within the grave, they discovered a mummified corpse, a club foot upon one leg. The foot in question was hewn from the body and taken to the courthouse as evidence the corpse was that of Lane. Afterward, the foot was put on display in a glass jar. Eventually, the macabre trophy was taken to the Thompson-Hickman Museum, where it became one of its most prominent exhibits. In 2017, Lane's descendants were returned the foot, which they had cremated. The ashes subsequently spread across Boot Hill in a ceremony that finally put the story of George Lane to rest. The Montana Vigilantes hold a storied and often sordid place within the annals of the American West. Numerous books have sought to capture the blood-soaked essence of that violent place and time, all with varying degrees of historical veracity and personal bias. The very first account of the committee's actions, Vigilantes of Montana, was released in 1865 and was written by none other than Thomas Dimsdale, newspaper man and notable member of the Vigilance. In fact, a number of vigilantes or their family members would go on to publish accounts of the events, though the truthfulness contained within should be eyed with a careful scrutiny. Vigilante activities raged throughout Montana well into the 1870s, eventually playing a role in the creation of the Stockmen's Associations that sought to bring an end to the cattle rustling that propagated throughout the region post-Indian Wars. 
While there are many today that still hold the actions of the vigilantes as the necessary rebuttal to an increasingly violent time, some historians have sought to paint a more balanced view of the events. It is very likely that many of the vigilants did not necessarily keep the well-being of their community at the forefront of their mind. Others were surely simple citizens, angry and scared, caught up in the turbulence of the moment. Regardless, it cannot be ignored that so many prominent members of the Vigilance Committee went on to occupy seats of political power, lending the entire ordeal an air of conspiracy. It is for this reason that some promote the idea that the acts of the Vigilance Committee of Alder Gulch were tied to the wills and wishes of a greater puppeteer dwelling within a white house atop a hill in Washington, D.C. So, was the rash of vigilante justice part of a greater conspiracy to control the western frontier? Or were these truly good and honest men bringing justice to a world where none existed? It seems more likely that the answer lies somewhere within the muddled fog between both of these diametric conclusions. But, without reliable and unbiased accounts, the truth will likely remain a mystery. Thank you for listening to this episode of Mysterious West. If you are interested in further reading, check the show notes in the episode description. There you will find links to all the books, resources, and articles I used in my research. Please subscribe and leave a review if you are so inclined. Every kind word helps with both quality and visibility. You can also find me at Mysterious West Cast on both Instagram and TikTok, where I share all sorts of interesting facts about the Old West. As always, if I got something wrong or missed a crucial detail, I'd love to hear about it. This episode is dedicated to my grandfather, the very man who instilled within me a love for history and the value of family. You'll never be far from my thoughts. This is your host, J.D. Wicks, reminding you to sit tall in the saddle and keep your eye on the skyline. I'll see you at the next campfire.